0: Hello, and welcome, but not to Planet Money, to the Planet Money Deep Read. This is Planet Money Deep Read 2, actually. This is the second time we're doing this. This is a new thing we're trying. It's an extra podcast in addition to our regularly scheduled Tuesday and Friday podcast. You can think of it as a Planet Money bonus extra. The first one was a couple weeks ago with Ian Bremmer. And after that one, we asked all of you to write in and tell us what you thought. And you wrote in and said... We like it. Keep doing it. So here we are, number two. Um, And the basic idea is we get all these books and we talk to these big thinkers and people with big ideas. And it's fun to have just a broad ranging conversation with these folks. And we want to share them with you when we do. So today we have a conversation you had, Alex, with Ragu Rajan. He is formerly the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. Right now he is a finance professor at the University of Chicago, the Booth School of Business there. And he's also the author of a new book, Fault Lines, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy. You thought we were safe, didn't you? I did. We are not. And you know, Ragu isn't just some sort of Cassandra out there. He's actually sort of famous for predicting the financial collapse that we just went through. Well, he's famous among like finance guys. <laughs> exactly. It's a special type of fame. I grant you that. And he's, well quote unquote, famous because of this paper he delivered at this fancy finance minister gathering they have every year in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And this was 2005, before any hint of the downturn. Everyone was there to celebrate Alan Greenspan as the greatest Fed chairman ever. And Raghu got up and presented this paper in which he said, you know what, guys, I've been studying bank risk data, and I think this whole thing could come crashing down. (laughs) <laughs> and at the time, he got a pretty cold reception. But then, of course, three years later, things did fall apart pretty much the way he said they might. And this brings us to the conversation he and I had. So Rago's premise in the book is that the factors that caused the crisis we just went through are still at work and will lead to future crises. He calls these factors fault lines. And here's
1: our conversation. The first fault line uh, is growing inequality. Now, you know, inequality, when it reflects... A, a lack of capability or opportunity becomes quite detrimental. And that, I think, is the problem that the United States faces today. Technological progress has always, over the last 150, 200 years, required people to get more and more educated. So around the turn of the, the uh, 19th century, as it moved into the 20th century, it was people needed a high school education because now they were moving from the farms to big chemical factories, to big auto factories. And therefore. What happened was an enormous spurt in high school education in the United States, as as you got schools, uh, you know, come, uh, lots of schools opening and uh, a change in the curriculum, uh, which which actually produced the right kind of people. What we've had more recently is the the internet boom uh, and uh, you know the advent of computers and so on, all of which has required even higher education than high school education. But if you look at what's happening to the United States, the number of high school graduates has remained relatively stagnant since the 1970s. More worrisome, if you look at male graduates from universities, that is no different for people born in the 1940s as it is for people born in the 1970s. In other words, three decades hasn't changed the number of male high uh, college graduates, which is extremely worrisome when you think those three decades meant enormous changes in requirements of uh, of uh, of the labor market for skills. Bottom line there has been a stagnation in the wages of a significant part of the U.S. population, and the stagnation has been because we haven't improved the capabilities of those people. Now, where am I going? Why has all this got anything to do with the credit crisis? Well, if you look at emerging markets, when they deal with the problem of growing inequality and growing dissatisfaction of the population, the answer typically is, hand out some some goodies, hand out some sweets, so that or let them eat cake so that the population feels happy at least for a little while. Even though it doesn't and have that's, a good
0: job, it, it's still at least the government is giving me this uh, pension or abs- this.
1: The, this extra pension, this is what happened in Greece. You kept the government workers happy by giving them more of a pension, you know, 14 months worth of wages rather than 12 months, more holidays. So you don't pay as much attention to your paycheck, when, in fact, your consumption is keeping up. And, and that's my point. Over the last 20, 25 years, the answer has been increasing borrowing so that you borrow in order to finance a better lifestyle, but, in fact, you're going deeper into deeper into debt. This is precisely what I think happened in the United States, and that's why the chapter which deals with this is called Let Them Eat Credit. In my mind, credit became the new way of redistribution. Now, housing was the one thing which actually seemed even better than just opening the floodgates to credit. Because with housing, uh, if you can offer more credit to housing, people have a house which is an asset which lets them look forward into the future. Moreover, as the house price rises, you feel wealthier. You don't feel you're borrowing. You don't feel you're going deeper into, into hawk. And this is ironic. The government had the tools to encourage it, precisely because it acquired those tools in dealing with the mess of the Great Depression. That is when we created the Federal Housing Authority. We created Fannie Mae, and these were the entities through which you pushed lending to, to uh, low-income segments of the population. I think the, the intent was honorable. The intent was in many ways good, but the, the problem was you, the private sector took that intent and took us all over the cliff, while mm-hmm. while driving that intent to its logical conclusion
0: and and, and so the big, basic argument is that is that with the that this that this inequality um doesn't allow people in, because there's this inequality because people are um for whatever reason aren't graduating from college aren't getting the skills they need to provide um for themselves in this new in a new economy in a new sort of higher skill economy um and because it's hard to reorganize your society to ensure that people that everybody does graduate from college, that's the, that's the, that's the hard thing to do, and right. that's what we eventually need to do because right. and, and so in lieu of doing that, um, what governments and politicians ha- ha- have done is is tried to mask over the effects by lending people money to so that they can live a lifestyle as if they had graduated from college, even though right. they aren't able to earn what they would have if they'd graduated from college.
1: Absolutely, it's credit as a palliative, and of course it accords well with the fact that at least in the short run you can make feel make people feel much happier. Uh, the problem is the bill has to be paid in the longer run.
0: Now, uh, one of the other things that, that that you talked about was that there's there's a, there's a chapter of your book where you're talking about another, and this is in the, this is along the same lines. This is the same fault line as as the the, the rise in inequality. You're talking about. Um there's a lack of a social safety net in the United States and that leads that leads policymakers to you lose your job in, in in the United States and the government, if it wants to try to respond, which it does because you're voting them out of office, if they don't it has basically one option which is to lower interest rates and really really try to get the economy ginned up again so that you can so that you can get your get a job because if you don't have a job you don't have health care you don't have you know you, you don't have savings whereas in other european countries if you lose your job the government isn't under as quite as much pressure to to rev up the economy because you can withstand a sort of a, a, a natural business cycle more, because there's a longer, there's more benefits. Is that that's the, is that the argument? Well,
1: so, uh, yes, it is, and it, it works as follows. I mean, the U.S. has historically had very sharp recoveries from recessions. So, um, you know, usually by about six months into the recovery, you've recovered all the growth that was lost, and eight months into the recovery, you've recovered all the jobs that were lost. Well, starting in 1991, the nature of the recoveries changed. In uh, 1991, uh, it took about three quarters for the, jo- uh, the growth to come back, but it took about 23 months, nearly two years, for the jobs to come back, the jobs that had been lost. 2001 was uh, even worse. It took just one quarter for the growth to come back. It took 38 months, uh, three years and some, for the jobs to come back. And my guess is this particular uh, recovery is going to be potentially, as things stand, even worse than that. In other words, it will take years, many years, for the jobs that we lost uh, to come back fully. Now, why does this matter? It matters because the U.S. has a relatively thin safety net. It has about six months unemployment insurance, after which you're on your own. And when you add to that the fact that many Americans don't have savings— uh, it creates enormous anxiety in in the population. Uh, you have then a situation where you have an immense political pressure from the people who are unemployed but also the people who fear that they will become unemployed to do something to bring jobs back. but then the economy is not producing jobs, so what you have to do is stimulate, stimulate, stimulate until the jobs come back so so that is um, is the focus of this chapter what i What I say is On the one hand, you've got uh, fiscal policies, that is government expenditures, uh, which are undertaken in response to recessions nowadays, uh, which tend to be overblown, which tend to get at the wrong thing, which tend to try and promote the wrong kinds of expenditures, which ultimately hurt the health of the United States. Uh, But more important is that you've got monetary policy, which stays on hold forever, uh, which is what is going on right now. Uh, interest rates will not be raised until the jobs start coming back in full measure. but by the time the jobs come back in full measure, you' have the financial sector taking enormous risks which put the entire system uh under peril
0: right so 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 you're saying basically without a with with a with a relatively weak social net, politicians in order to respond to the concerns of the citizens about about you know hey am I going to be able to eat am I going to have health care am I going to be able to they they have to use the tools at their disposal which is sort of misdirected fiscal policy which is basically what congress does um, and that is like either you know doing tax cuts like the home home builder tax credits right. and 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 that sort of thing or monetary policy which is what the fed does which is what which is what greenspan did after in in 2001 where he was criticized for uh, in in two thousand two for for leaving the Fed funds rate very very low for a long time, and that, that by many people that's that's pointed to as one of the key, and I, we have pointed to it as right. well on, on our program as one of the the key causes of the of the financial of the of the housing bubble, right. which was this this, this this these rates being kept low for the for for a long time. But you're saying policymakers needed to do that because. The jobs weren't coming back, and it was this sort of a desperate attempt to try to get people working again so
1: because which they needed to because our because our social safety net isn't is isn't very strong right. The problem is extremely distorted policies in response to the fact there's political pressure because people don't have a safety net right
0: um, and now of course, one of the other fault lines um, has to do with global imbalances Right. Um, it, you want to you want to just give a
1: give yep. a quick. It's sketch not easy to get excited about it, but I think uh, it's a <laughs> deep problem. It's a deep problem, and and the problem has to do with the way countries have grown. Now, um, you know, post war, uh, Japan, Germany, um, Korea, Taiwan, China all chose a way of growth. In fact, the only way, uh, for the most part, that has proven successful, which is to focus on exports. Now, um, this has been extremely successful. No country has grown as fast as Japan did between 1950 and 1973. Uh, it grew at 8% per year uh, per capita. The way it did that is by you know, uh, coddling a set of firms, giving them a whole lot of government benefits, but then telling them, look, you need to go out and export. Uh, and so, you know, you both gave them both carrot and stick. The carrot was the benefits the government gave. The stick was go out and export. And when these countries did that, they could sort of exploit the whole world market. Uh, they got scale. And it was a very successful strategy. The problem that I point to is that uh, while they exported, they also found that their domestic sectors – Tended to be much less efficient than the export sector. So extremely powerful uh, and comparative export-led sector, extremely weak domestic sector, and what that has created then is a country that is dependent on exports, both for growth, but also in recessions to come out of recessions, depends on somebody else spending. Now, somebody here, else spending, some and, other country spending, and, exactly,
0: and that and that that typically has meant us the united states
1: well not not always in the 90s it was the emerging markets we talked about them earlier the guys who were willing to you know do these populist policies that led to splurges it was latin america's uh, you know india to some extent a whole bunch of countries spent more than they produced right and so they were importing the difference financed through foreign capital from countries like japan the, the problem was that that was not a very sustainable form of growth, and country after country in the emerging markets suffered a crisis in the 1990s. So they, they changed. Uh, the emerging markets said, uh, we're not going to do this again. Uh, we're going to be more sensible. And many of them turned into exporters themselves, adding to the flood of exports coming from countries like Japan and Germany that had historically been exporters. Well, what you had in the 2000s is a new set of countries stepped up. Let me reel off their names. The United States, the United Kingdom, Spain, Greece, Portugal, uh, Latvia, Iceland. So long as you have these countries like Germany and Japan, which are focused on exporting their surpluses, you have to have countries like Greece and the United States buying much more than they can afford. And that, to my mind, is a central problem of the world economy, a problem that the United States was willing to succumb to because of the other forces we talked about, the, uh, the inequality, uh, the, the kind of need for stimulus to create jobs, all of which encouraged consumption uh, in a downturn and led to the kind of spending uh, which, which resulted in the crisis. But going forward, uh, you know, can the United States afford it? We've already seen in Europe that the peripheral European countries that ran large deficits now are saying no more. Well, who's going to buy the stuff that Germany churns out? Now, Germany is is acting uh, you know, as if it's, it's done the right thing over the last so many years, and in some ways it has. It has become much more competitive. But Germany could not be Germany without exporting its surpluses, which are bought by uh, Italy, f- um, Spain, uh, Portugal, and so on, and so you know they're they're locked in a in a in a symbiotic uh, um, uh, um, you know death dance, if you will, until Germany starts expanding its own demand, uh, and typically by improving the productivity of its non-tradable sector of of its plumbers, of its shops, and so on. Uh, it's not clear to me that we won't go through the cycle again and again of these surpluses looking for somebody willing to overspend.
0: Now, can we bring that? Can we bring that to the level of, of 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 sort of like a like an example here? So, what you're saying is, are Ger- German plumbers are are worse than than American plumbers?
1: No, I, I'm saying that the kinds of regulations that are in place in the domestic sector are uh, less so for Germany, more so for Japan. Uh, All right, let's take Japan. What what is what what is? Okay, let's, let me give you an example. So, Japanese haircuts are extremely expensive. Okay. Uh, part of the reason is, uh, you know, uh, productivity uh, in the Japanese haircut sector is is lower. Uh, so an upstart comes up and starts saying, I'm going to offer cheaper haircuts. That's the typical way competition, uh, you know, pushes down prices. If you have cheaper haircuts, more Japanese will go get haircuts. Uh, and there will be more uh, sort of activity in the haircutting sector, and you will get growth there. Well, they, the startup provides cheaper haircuts, But the existing barbers get anxious because they'll have to cut prices. And they're perfectly happy where they are, uh, fewer haircuts, but, you know, uh, getting more per haircut. And so the Barber Guild gets together and says, this is terrible. Uh, You know, uh, this practice of offering haircuts, uh, we have to find a way to to uh, nip it in the bud. Uh, And they have a brilliant idea. They say, well, offering haircuts without shampoos is unhygienic. Uh, it's a bad idea. So, we're going to mandate that before every haircut, you have to offer a shampoo. Well, the nice thing is, all the existing barber shops are equipped with basins and so on where you can offer people a shampoo. But that new startup, uh, because it's cutting costs and because it's cutting frills, doesn't have a basin where you can have a shampoo. Well, in one stroke, by requiring a shampoo before a haircut, You've raised the cost of doing business for the startup. You've driven the startup, uh, you know, uh, to a corner, and uh, typically they can't compete anymore. And you've preserved the the way of life for the existing barbers. In the process, you have far fewer haircuts in Japan than possibly if you allowed much more competition. You can see this play out in many sectors: transport, retail, construction, where a few incumbents sort of monopolize. Uh, uh, what's going on, and don't allow the kind of growth that al- would allow Japan domestic sources of growth uh, as distinct from the export-led sources of growth, which is, it typically relies on. Hmm. So, so tie the tie
0: the the, the frustrated um, wannabe barber in Japan back to me. I, what's the now? What's so, the link?
1: So the link is that uh, Japan then relies primarily on exporting cameras to you uh, for its growth rather than seeing its barbers and its gardeners and its, uh, and its coffee shops uh, surge in popularity. Uh, net result is it needs you to spend in order for it to grow, right? Its surpluses are looking for a home. It's also willing to finance you. Uh, German banks were a big part of the financing of the subprime mortgage back crisis. Uh, they're willing to, to finance you. They're looking to place not just their goods, but also the money they make from selling those goods to you in your economy. And those pressures uh, tend to add to whatever existing pressures you have. So how does all this come together? You have the pressure on uh, because of income inequality causing the government to send more credit to low income segments. You have the foreign investors looking to buy uh, U.S. securities and again willing to fund, uh, for example, activity in the low income segment because also their funding helps people then raise home equity loans, which then they go and buy. Uh, you know Japanese cameras with, and the third aspect of this is even while this is going on, the Fed, which should which should be the natural guardian of this process and prevent this process from getting carried away, is happy to join the party, keeping interest rates low because it fears that if it raises interest rates, unemployment will soon shoot up all over the place, and so you've got all these forces coming together, saying, go out and spend, and go out and borrow. And that takes the financial sector a long way towards the cliff. There are other forces, of course, in the book that I talk about, but that should give you a picture of what's going on.
0: All right. There you have it. Deep read number two. Thank you very much to Raghu Rajan. Please, you out there listening to this, let us know what you think. Send us email, planetmoney at npr.org. We have links to his book, Fault Lines, How Hidden Fractures Still Threaten the World Economy. And we also will link to that paper he delivered in 2005 at the Jackson Hole Conference, the one where he predicted the crisis. That is all at www.npr.org slash money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening.